Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, put your seatbelts on as we, Lord willing, will go through the rest of this book, Revelation 21 and 22 tonight. We were in Revelation 21 the last time uh, I was with you, and the outlines are still available uh, if you want to get you one. Tonight I want to talk to you about heaven again, but really it's, I think the title is Beauty Beyond Description or Beauty Beyond Imagination. I was just last night, I was outside and, and I looked up into the sky and it was so clear. Thankfully, the smoke had moved away and it was so clear and, and it was so, the stars were so prominent. The, the stars were just, the sky was absolutely full of stars and sparkling and all of that. And I was reminded the story of, of this little girl who was walking with her daddy. Uh, out in the country, and you know, if you get out in the country away from the, the city lights and away from the automobile headlights and the street lamps, you, you tend to see more of the sky you, where, if you go out where it's really, really uh, out by yourself. And, and they were out in the country, and they looked up at that dark velvet sky, and it was studded with these diamond-like stars. And, and she said to her daddy, Daddy, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what do you think the right side of heaven is going to look like? I thought about that last night. I, I thought, Lord, I wonder what the other side looks like. Because this side is beautiful. This side is stunning. This side is breathtaking. This side, as I stand here, I feel so small as I look at the beauty of your creation. But my goodness, what does the other side look like? Well, I'm convinced that when we get there, of course, we're going to be amazed beyond words. Uh, and how do you describe heaven? You know, how, how do you describe the dazzling glory of heaven? Uh, I'm not sure how we can put it in, in words because it's beyond our ability truly to comprehend. I mean, the best way I can kind of give you a, a comparison is imagine if we could go back in time, go back, say, a thousand years. And trying to describe to somebody a thousand years ago who only cooked over a fire, if we tried to describe to them what a microwave was like. You know, they've got no point of reference. It's like, how do they even understand it? Or we go back a thousand years or two thousand years to the Bedouins, and they, and they, they travel around with, with, their, with their herd how do you describe to them? They've lived. They live in the de or they lived in the desert. So these Bedouin tribesmen who lived in the desert one or two thousand years ago, imagine going back in time one or two thousand years and trying to describe to them what air conditioning is like. Again, there's no point of reference. It's it's hard to even imagine how we could describe to them air conditioning. Well, let's let's go the other direction. What if we could go forward into eternity? What if you and I right now could transport ourselves and go to heaven? How in the world would we describe what we saw? Well, the only way to do that, since we really don't have a clear point of reference, is to compare the unknown with the known. Uh, that is, we use terms and descriptions that are familiar to us, to describe things that are beyond the, the finite frame of our finite frame of reference. So John does that in Revelation 21. God gives him this vision, and John uses terms and descriptions that were familiar to him, 
to describe things that were beyond his and our finite frame of reference. Let's just begin reading in verse 9, Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And we talked about that last time. Now, now notice how in verse 11 he tries to begin to, to describe it. He says, It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance. How do you describe what you saw? He said, Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clearest crystal. John is saying, you know, the the best way that I can describe heaven to you, I got to take something that's known so I can describe to you the unknown. And so he, that's what we're going to be studying today or tonight. And and I want you to, as we go through this text in chapter 21 and then later in chapter 22, I want to basically, as best we can, describe heaven to you. Again, thankfully, you don't have to depend upon my uh, uh, description of heaven, because of course I've never been there, you've never been there, but thank God, somebody say amen, thank God He has described it for us in His Word, right? I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that God cares enough to describe for us the heaven that awaits us. So, uh, I've just put some notes there on your note sheet giving you a lot of blank spaces there to take notes. I want to talk to you as we, as we try to understand heaven, first of all, about the symbolism of heaven. Uh, verses uh, 12 through 17. Here's how he describes it, verse 12. It, speaking of heaven, it had a, what kind of a, a wall here? A what? A great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates And on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now it's interesting, we'll come back to the wall in just a moment. Uh, But he talks about these twelve gates there in verse 12. And again in verse 13 he says, There were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. Put this down somewhere on your notes, just write it there in a blank space or in the additional notes section, the gates are symbolic for the access that we have to heaven. That in heaven there are these gates. And, and how many gates are there, class? There's, there's, there's 12 gates, and there's symbolic of the access that we have in heaven. And, and look how he describes it again. Look at it in verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and, and with 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. On the gates... And there were three gates on the east, and three on the north, and three on the south, and three on the west. Adrian Rogers said, these gates are open because the cross has unlocked them. That's good. That's one of those things where I think, man, I wish I'd said that. Notice that they are open in every direction. North, south, east, and west. That speaks of the grace of God that reaches out to all people. Every race, every tribe, every nation. People from all directions on earth will come to heaven one day. The four corners of the globe. In fact, go back quickly to Revelation 7 verse 9. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. We've read this before. But notice what he says. 
After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne. And so these people are going to come in through these 12 gates, representing uh, the, the grace of God reaching out to all people. But there's something significant about these gates. Notice in the second part of verse 12, somebody tell me what is significant about these gates. Second half of verse 12. Say that louder. These gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. Indicating that these 12 tribes were the vehicles through which God brought the Messiah into the world. These 12 tribes were the vehicle through which we have access to God. The Messiah came through these 12 tribes. So that speaks of the Old Testament. Then I want you to notice not only is there 12 gates, but there are also 12 foundations. Uh, Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. These foundational stones had the names of the 12 apostles. What's the significance of that? Well, they are the ones who took the gospel of the good news about the Messiah to all the world. So think of, think of it in these terms. Uh, the 12 gates representing, these are the 12 tribes that the Messiah came through to give us access to God. That's the gates. And then the foundation, these are the people through whom God worked to take the gospel to the world. To take the good news about the Messiah to the world. So uh, the gates represent the Old Testament. The, the 12 foundations represent the New Testament. It's interesting what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Write down that reference. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, whenever we enter heaven, we will be reminded of the debt that we owe to the nation of Israel and to the 12 apostles. By the way, I don't want to get political here, but I want you to know something. We owe a debt to the nation of Israel. We should always stand with God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, we we, we talk about the wall. This is fascinating to me. If you go back to verse 12... Not only are there gates and there's foundation, but in order to have gates, of course, there has to be a wall holding the gates. And this wall, to me, is, is fascinating. Let's read about it. Going back to verse 12, first time it's mentioned is in verse 12. It had a, not just a wall, it had a great, not just a great wall, but a great high wall. This is a great high wall. Make sure you remember that phrase. Looking down in verse 17. He measured its wall, he measured the wall of heaven, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which, which the angel was using. The, the great high wall speaks of the security that we have in heaven. Now let me explain this to you. How thick was it? How many cubics was it? Scholars say that if you figure that out, that's about 200 feet thick. A wall that's 200 feet thick. But the fascinating thing is not just how thick the wall is, it's how high 
the wall is. I want you to look in the text and tell me how high the wall is, according to the text. Twelve. What verse is it? Sixteen. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and, and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length as, and as wide and as high as it is long. Now, people smarter than me figured out how much 12,000 stadia is. And get this, write this down. And, and, and some, I've seen two different numbers. I'm going to give you both of them. It's somewhere in between. 12,000 stadia is 1,400 to 1,500 miles not feet, not yards, miles. So the wall that we're talking about is, is somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 miles high. Does that fascinate anybody? Oh, 200 feet thick, 14 to 15, I'm going to use 1,500 miles high. I did a little research. I got curious. I said, how high does the International Space Station fly around the earth, orbit the earth? International Space Station orbits around the... Let me put it this way. It would hit the wall of heaven if it were there. International Space Station orbits the earth at 291 miles above the earth. It's circling the globe 291 miles up off the, from, from, from the earth. 291. The wall is going to be how high? Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's building a wall right there. 200. I shouldn't have gone there. Two. Two. I lost it right there, didn't I? I just lost it. Five years from now, ten years from now, somebody's going to be listening to this and, and say, what was he talking about? I want you to think of this wall, a wall that is approximately six times higher than the space station is flying right now, 200 feet thick. You know what that represents? It represents the security that we have in heaven. You see, the people of John's day would have spoken to them, this would have spoken volumes about safety and security because in John's day, the safety and security of the city was always in proportion to the size of the wall around that city. The walls are not going to be there to keep something bad from happening to you because Satan will already be cast down into the lake of fire in Revelation 20. The great high wall is simply a reminder that those who are redeemed are safe in the arms of God. I, I wish we could just stay there for a while, but let me go on because uh, I'm just now at the first one. My goodness. All right, 12 gates. 12 gates. We've already talked about that. Let me go on. Um, the size, all right, let's go to the size of heaven. Verse 15 through 17, I've already alluded to it, but it, this is fascinating as well. Verses 15 through 17 uh, indicate that heaven is a real place, it is a literal place, and it is a very large place. Again, 12,000 stadia, 1,500 square mile cube. Size of, it's interesting to me that heaven has dimensions, Interesting that, that heaven has a literal size. 15,000 
1,500 square mile cube. Somebody figured that up, said the land base area would be 2.25 million square miles. Uh, so think of it in these terms, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles this way, that way, 1,500 miles high. Someone calculated that would be large enough for 20 billion people to have 75 acres each. 20 billion. Now, there's 7 billion people on planet Earth right now. Almost three times what we have on planet Earth, we've got room for almost three times what we currently have on planet Earth to be in heaven for everybody to have 75 acres, if, if there is such a thing as an acre in heaven. But it's just a way of taking earthly terms to help you understand how large this is. Now, surely, here's what God's communicating to us. Listen, God is communicating there is room in heaven for everybody. Doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. But there is room in heaven for everybody. Remember what, I think it was First Peter, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Somebody, sometimes I hear people say, well, I prefer a small church. I want to tell you something, you're not going to like heaven then. It's going to be bigger than anything you've ever experienced. Now, let's talk about the shape of heaven. Verse 16, the shape of heaven. Heaven is shaped, not only does it have dimension, it's shaped in a perfect cube. The length, the breadth, the height, they're all the same. Now, why would that be significant? Well, it's significant because the cube is the symbol of perfection. Every side is the same. Every side is complete. The cube is the symbol of perfection, which, of course, would represent God. But there's even more to it than that. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the, there, there was this Holy of Holies in the temple, that was the place where the presence of God dwelt. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but you can write down the reference at 1 Kings 6.20. 1 Kings 6.20 says that the Holy of Holies, the place in the temple where the Spirit of God would dwell, guess what? It's a perfect cube. Now, it's not as big as heaven, but if you look up 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, the Holy of Holies was, was measured 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, or about 30 feet. Isn't that interesting that the place where the Spirit of God dwells is a perfect cube when, when the temple was in existence? So, in the earthly Jerusalem, the glory of God was limited to a, to a, a, a single tiny cube-shaped room. But in the New Jerusalem, watch this, in the New Jerusalem, in heaven, the glory of God is going to fill that vast cube. All of heaven will be the Holy of Holies. This is about to get good. Please tune into this. All of heaven will be a Holy of Holies. All of heaven will be the place where God's Spirit dwells. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit dwelled in that temple, in that in that. 30-foot cube in the Holy of Holies. That's where God's Spirit dwelt in the Old Testament while here on earth. But in heaven, the, all of heaven is a cube, and the entire cube, 1,500 miles in every direction, will hold the presence of God. So let's talk about the splendor of heaven, uh, verses 18 and following. The wall, he said, was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, 
as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And and he lists all the different stones there in in those verses. And then he says in verse 21 that the twelve gates were what? This is so interesting. The twelve gates were what? Pearls. Now it doesn't say they're decorated with pearls. It said the twelve gates were pearls. And it even gets more specific. Each gate made of a single pearl. That's a big honking pearl. You, you, let me tell you how big that is. Somebody, uh, somebody figured it up and said with only 12 gates and it's 1,500 miles that... that now, Steve Robbins will tell me you, you, you're wrong in your math, so I'm just going to say somebody figured it up. I don't remember who it was, uh, and it probably, probably wasn't me, but I don't remember who it was, but I read this somewhere uh, that if you figure it up, the 1,500 miles and the 12 gates, that there's 300 miles between each gate. Is that right? 300, did I read that right? 300 miles apart, yeah. You say, well, why does that matter that the gates are 300 miles apart? Here's what I'm saying. If they're 300 miles apart, more than likely the gates are massive. And each gate is a single pearl. Each gate is a single pearl. I mean, just the beauty of this is amazing. And then we go on to verse 21. There's a street. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. You know, we, we talk about all the time about walking streets of gold. You know, we, we make wedding bands out of, out of gold because it's the most precious thing that we have, and that's going to be asphalt in heaven. Isn't that amazing? But now it really gets good because I want to talk to you next about the sacredness of heaven. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. John said, you know, I was kind of looking around. Every, every time I went to a major city before, I saw a tabernacle, I saw a temple. John, John said, I was looking around. I, I didn't see a temple in the city. But here's the reason. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Oh, this is beautiful. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb, the lamb is its lamp. Wow. Look, let's keep reading. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Just the sacredness. Think, of, think about it for a moment. The sacredness of this place. That the entire city will be indwelt by the presence of God. That God's presence will be so real that there will not need to be any artificial lights. There will not need to be a sun or a moon. That God's presence will light all of heaven. 
1,500 miles high, God's presence will light it up. 1,500 miles wide, God's presence will light it up. The Shekinah glory of God will be the light of heaven. That's why it says, verse 27, nothing impure will enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the sacredness of heaven. No sin there. And then the next, I want to talk to you about the supernatural aspect. And now we move into chapter 22. This chapter, of course, brings us to the final scenes of this great book. It also brings us to the final chapter in the Word of God. And because it is the final chapter in the Word of God and the final chapter in the book of Revelation, it is indeed very significant. It talks about the supernatural aspect of heaven. You say, what do you mean by supernatural aspect? Well, supernatural simply means something beyond the natural. Something beyond what we can do. Something beyond the the natural uh, world that we know. Here's what he tells us will happen. Uh, I can't remember. I don't put this on your notes. Here's what he said will happen. Paradise will be regained. I want you to think in terms of the Garden of Eden before you read this text. I want you to think in terms of the Garden of Eden. And part of the way that John describes, here's what heaven is going to be like. Paradise will be regained. So let's, with that as a background, let's read in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You go back to Revelation, I mean Genesis, it should. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Where did the curse come in? Of course, back in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. There will no longer be any curse. Do you know why? Because paradise will be regained. Paradise will be restored. Verse 3, the second part of verse 3. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, "These I like this, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. He talks about, first of all, the the river of the water of life. And the question is, is that literal or is it symbolic? Is it spiritual? I think personally that probably there might be a literal river, and if so, that's wonderful. But I think what he is talking about is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the river is literal, but maybe it symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to look at it, but let me give you references to write down. John 4, verse 13 through 14. John 4, verse 13 and 14. John 7, verse 37 and 39. John 14, verse 6 and 7. 
and John 16, verses 5 and 7. Let me just summarize it this way. Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me. For, and, it, and if you'll come to me, for out of you will flow the streams of living water. And it says in that text, he said this indicating the Holy Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. When you read Revelation 22.1, I believe it's a symbol of the abundant life that God provides us through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1 again. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. It's not just the river of water. It is the river of water of what? Of life. And Jesus said in those references that I gave you that hopefully you wrote down, Jesus talks about the life that the Holy Spirit provides. When we get to heaven, here's what I want you to understand. When we get to heaven, whether there is a literal river or not, what is symbolized in that, in that picture is this. God quenches our thirst. So we have the river of the water of life. And then we have the tree of life. In verse 2, it's a symbol of the eternal life that God gives. A symbol of the eternal life. This word picture takes us back to the Garden of Eden. I do want to take a moment to read that. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will surely die. Now go over to chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. This is, of course, after the fall. And and all of the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head, speaking of Jesus, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Look at verse 17. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now, what does all that have to do? Well, go to chapter 3, verse 22. Verse 22, look at this. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of what? Tree of life. It was in the Garden of Eden. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live, live how long? Forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. So now with that in mind, go back to Revelation 22, look at verse 2. It says, Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit. So here's what I want you to understand. The tree of life is significant because it shows the complete undoing of the curse that was in the Garden of Eden. Now, have you ever asked the question, what will we do when we get to heaven? You know, you're going to float around on clouds or you're going to be, you know, learning, taking harp lessons. I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in heaven? Well, he tells us a little bit of what we're going to do. Look in verses 3 through 5. He says in verse 3, we're going to serve God. 
No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will what? Will serve Him. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. But here's what I want you to understand. I don't think you're going to be floating around on the cloud for all eternity. I've, I literally have had people say, Pastor, heaven sounds boring to me. Because I, you know, I, the idea of just sitting on a cloud all day just sounds, for all eternity, it's just boring. To which I want to say, wait a minute, where did you find that in Scripture? Who showed you in Scripture you're floating on a cloud for all eternity? You're not. God said, Here, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be serving me. Again, I don't know what that looks like, but I'm glad to know I'm going to have something to do. And by the way, listen. More than, more than any time here on earth, we will finally realize God deserves to be served. And we will want something to do for Him. Not only will we serve God, but we will fellowship with God. Verse 4. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. They, look what it says. They will see His face. And, and, and we're going to reign with God. There will be no more night. There will be uh, no need for light or lamp, etc. And they will reign forever and ever. We're going to spend eternity with Him. Which brings us to the sovereign mandate from heaven. Verses 6 through 11. Read this with me. There's a biblical mandate here where he tells us that we need to live the teaching of this book. He said, Behold, I'm sorry, verse 6, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then he says, Behold, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book, we have a biblical mandate to live the teaching of this book. It's again in verse 7. I'm, I'm sorry, verse uh, 9. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who, who, who keep the words of this book. Worship God, he says. Look again in verse 10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Don't seal it up. Live it out. We, are, we have this mandate to live out the prophecy that, that we, are, that we f- uh, find in this book. Uh, I, I wish we had a little bit more time to talk about this idea that he's coming soon. But here's what that means. I'll give you the short version. Here's, here's what it means when it says he's coming soon. It means there's nothing left to get in his way. There's nothing left for him to do before he comes back. If I told you that I'm going to come over to your house soon, you're probably thinking Keith's going to be here any minute. But that's not the way this verse is being that word is being used. The word is being used this way, there's nothing left to do on the calendar except for him to come back. We're not waiting on something else to happen before we get to that point. We have this biblical mandate because he's coming back and there's nothing left except for that event. We need to live this book. You see, God doesn't want you... Listen, church, listen to me. God doesn't want you just to know the book of Revelation. He wants you to live it. Revelation also presents us with a compelling motivation that the Lord is near. So let's just read the rest of it. Verse 12, he says it again in verse 12. Behold, notice, listen, listen, that's what that word means. Behold, I am coming soon. 
My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first letters of the Greek, uh, first and last letters of the, of the Greek language, the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they, have, that, that they may have the right to the tree of life. There's that reference again. And may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, uh, sexual immor- Im- the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, he's not saying that, all right, you're in heaven, and outside the walls are going to be people hanging around who didn't make it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there are some people that are not going to go into heaven, and he describes who they are, but they're not going to be outside the walls of heaven. According to Revelation 20, they're going to spend eternity in hell, aren't they? Not everybody's going to make it to heaven. Outside simply means those who are not inside. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. He was prophesied in the Old Testament and the bright and morning star. Remember, David was promised there will be one who will sit on your throne for eternity. There will one, your throne will be occupied for eternity. And that's the fulfillment of that prophecy in the Old Testament. Verse 17. The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit and the bride, say come. And let him who hears say come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Did you see, ladies and gentlemen, that it's whoever? We've grown up in a society where we've grown up around Baptists and and churches, and, and perhaps most of us understand that. But you need to understand, there are some people, and maybe one of you are here tonight, there's some people, they don't feel good enough for heaven. They don't feel like they qualify for heaven. They don't feel like that they can make it into heaven. And on your own, you can't. If you place your faith in what Christ did on the cross, heaven is open to everyone and to anyone. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. God takes what he said very seriously. We better not have the audacity to say, yeah, but I think God already has a plan and he's going to work it out. Verse 19, and if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And there are are times, and you probably have said this as well, there are times when I have looked heavenwards because of some things that I've gone through or what I see our nation going through, there are times when I have looked heavenward and said, even so, come Lord Jesus. 
I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm looking forward to the day, though I can't fully describe it, I'm looking forward to the day when sin will be eradicated. When sin will be abolished. When we will no longer be in the presence of sin, but we will be in the presence of our Savior. And the book ends this way. It's a good way for us to end tonight. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for eternity. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for heaven. And it's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.